Chapter Seven of Lives of the Engineers, George and Robert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Andy Minter. Lives of the Engineers, George and Robert Stevenson, by Samuel Smiles. Chapter Seven: George Stevenson's further improvements in the locomotive, the Hetton Railway. Robert Stevenson as viewer's apprentice and student. Stevenson's experiments on fire damp and his labours in connection with the invention of the safety lamp occupied but a small portion of his time, which was necessarily devoted for the most part to the ordinary business of the colliery. From the day of his appointment as engine wright, one of the subjects which particularly occupied his attention was the best practical method of winning and raising the coal. He was one of the first to introduce steam machinery underground with the latter object. Indeed, the Killingworth mines came to be regarded as the models of the district, the working arrangements generally being conducted in a skilful and efficient manner, reflecting the highest credit on the colliery engineer. Besides attending to the underground arrangements, the improved transit of the coals above ground from the pit head to the shipping place demanded an increasing share of his attention. Every day's experience convinced him that the locomotive constructed by him after his patent of the years 1815 was far from perfect, though he continued to entertain confident hopes of its eventual success. He even went so far as to say that the locomotive would yet supersede every other traction power for drawing heavy loads. Many still regarded his travelling engine as little better than a curious toy, and some, shaking their heads, predicted for it a terrible blow-up some day. Nevertheless, it was daily performing its work with regularity, dragging the coal-wagons between the colliery and the stithes, and saving the labour of many men and horses. There was not, however, so marked a saving in haulage as to induce the colliery masters to adopt locomotive power generally as a substitute for horses. How it could be improved and rendered more efficient as well as economical was constantly present to Stevenson's mind. At an early period of his labours, or about the time when he had completed his second locomotive, he began to direct his particular attention to the state of the road, as he perceived that the extended use of the locomotive must necessarily depend in a great measure upon the perfection, solidity, continuity, and smoothness of the way along which the engine travelled. Even at that early period he was in the habit of regarding the road and the locomotive as one machine, speaking of the rail and the wheel as man and wife. All railways were at that time laid in a careless and loose manner, and great inequalities of level were allowed to occur without much attention being paid to repairs. The consequence was a great loss of power, as well as much tear and wear of the machinery by the frequent jolts and blows of the wheels against the rails. His first object, therefore, was to remove the inequalities produced by the imperfect junction between rail and rail. At that time, in 1816, the rails were made of cast iron, each rail being about three feet long, and sufficient care was not taken to maintain the points of junction on the same level. The chairs, or cast-iron pedestals, into which the rails were inserted, were flat at the bottom, so that whenever any disturbance took place in the stone blocks or sleepers supporting them, the flat base of the chair, upon which the rails rested, being tilted by unequal subsidence, the end of one rail became depressed, while that of the other was elevated. 
Hence constant jolts and shocks, the reaction of which very often caused the fracture of the rails, and occasionally threw the engine off the road. To remedy this imperfection, Mr. Stevenson devised a new chair, with an entirely new mode of fixing the rails therein. Instead of adopting the butt joint, which had hitherto been used in all cast-iron rails, he adopted the half-lap joint, by which means the rails extended a certain distance over each other at the end, like a scarf-joint. These ends, instead of resting upon the flat chair, were made to rest upon the apex of a curve forming the bottom of the chair. The supports were also extended from three feet to three feet nine inches, or four feet, apart. These rails were accordingly substituted for the old cast-iron plates on the Killingworth Colliery Railway, and they were found to be a very great improvement upon the previous system, adding both to the efficiency of the horsepower, still employed in working the railway, and to the smooth action of the locomotive engine, but more particularly increasing the efficiency of the latter. This improved form of rail and chair was embodied in a patent taken out in the joint names of Mr. Losh of Newcastle, iron founder, and of Mr. Stevenson, bearing date 30th of September, 1816. Mr. Losh, being a wealthy, enterprising iron manufacturer, and having confidence in George Stevenson and his improvements, found the money for the purpose of taking out the patent, which in those days was a very costly as well as troublesome affair. The specification of the same patent also described various important improvements in the locomotive itself. The wheels of the engine were improved by being altered from cast to malleable iron, in whole or in part, by which they were made lighter as well as more durable and safe. But the most ingenious and original contrivance embodied in this patent was the substitute for springs which Mr. Stevenson invented. He contrived that the steam generated in the boiler should perform this important office. The method by which this was effected displayed such genuine mechanical genius that we would particularly call attention to the device, which was the more remarkable as it was contrived long before the possibility of steam locomotion had become an object of general inquiry or of public interest. It has already been observed that up to, and indeed after, the period of which we speak, there was no such class of skilled mechanics, nor were there any such machines and tools in use as are now available to inventors and manufacturers. Although skilled workmen were in course of gradual training in a few of the larger manufacturing towns, they did not, at the date of Stevenson's patent, exist in any considerable numbers nor was there any class of mechanics capable of constructing springs of sufficient strength and elasticity to support locomotive engines of ten tons weight. In order to avoid the dangers arising from the inequalities of the road, Stevenson so arranged the boiler of his new patent locomotive that it was supported upon the frame of the engine by four cylinders, which opened into the interior of the boiler. These cylinders were occupied by pistons with rods which passed downwards and pressed upon the upper side of the axles. The cylinders opening into the interior of the boiler allowed the pressure of steam to be applied to the upper side of the piston, and the pressure being nearly equivalent to one-fourth of the weight of the engine, each axle, whatever might be its position, had at all times nearly the same amount of weight to bear and consequently the entire weight was pretty equally distributed amongst the four wheels of the locomotive. Thus the four floating pistons were ingeniously made to serve the purpose of springs in equalising the weight, and in softening the jerks of the machine, 
the weight of which, it must also be observed, had been increased, on a road originally calculated to bear a considerably lighter description of carriage. This mode of supporting the engine remained in use until the progress of spring-making had so far advanced that steel springs could be manufactured of sufficient strength to bear the weight of locomotive engines. The result of the actual working of the new locomotive on the improved road amply justified the promises held forth in the specification. The traffic was conducted with greater regularity and economy, and the superiority of the engine, as compared with horse traction, became still more marked. It is a fact worthy of notice that the identical engines constructed in 1816, after the plan above described, are to this day to be seen in regular useful work upon the Killingworth Railway, conveying heavy coal trains at the speed of between five and six miles an hour, probably as economically as any of the more perfect locomotives now in use. Mr. Stevenson's endeavours having been attended with such marked success in the adaptation of locomotive power to railways, his attention was called by many of his friends, about the year 1818, to the application of steam to travelling on common roads. It was from this point that the locomotive started, Trevithick's first engine having been constructed with this special object. Stevenson's friends, having observed how far behind he had left the original projector of the locomotive in its application to railroads, perhaps naturally inferred that he would be equally successful in applying it to the purpose for which Trevithick and Vivian had intended their first engine. But the accuracy with which he estimated the resistance to which loads were exposed on railways, arising from friction and gravity, led him at a very early stage to reject the idea of ever applying steam-power economically to common road travelling. In October 1818 he made a series of careful experiments in conjunction with Nicholas Wood on the resistance to which carriages were exposed on railways, testing the results by means of a dynamometer of his own construction. The series of practical observations made by means of this instrument were interesting, as the first systematic attempt to determine the precise amount of resistance to carriages moving along railways. It was then, for the first time ascertained by experiment, that the friction was a constant quantity at all velocities. Although this theory had long before been developed by Vincent Coulomb, and was well known to scientific men as an established truth, Yet at the time when Stevenson made his experiments, the deductions of philosophers on the subject were neither believed in nor acted upon by practical engineers. He ascertained that the resistances to traction were mainly three, the first being upon the axles of the carriages, the second, or rolling resistance, being between the circumference of the wheel and the surface of the rail, and the third being the resistance of gravity. The amount of friction and gravity he could accurately ascertain, but the rolling resistance was a matter of greater difficulty, being subject to so much variation. He satisfied himself, however, that it was so great, when the surface presented to the wheel was of a rough character, that the idea of working steam carriages economically on common roads was dismissed by him as entirely impracticable. Taking it as ten pounds to a ton weight on a level railway, it became obvious to him that so small a rise as one in a hundred would diminish the useful effort of a locomotive by upwards of fifty per cent. This was demonstrated by repeated experiments, and the important fact, thus rooted in his mind, was never lost sight of in the course of his future railway career. 
It was owing in great measure to these painstaking experiments that he early became convinced of the vital importance, in an economical point of view, of reducing the country through which a railway was intended to pass as nearly as possible to a level, where, as in the first coal railways of Northumberland and Durham, the load was nearly all one way, that is, from the colliery to the shipping place, it was an advantage to have an inclination in that direction. The strain on the powers of the locomotive was thus diminished, and it was easy for it to haul the empty wagons back to the colliery up even a pretty steep incline. But when the loads were both ways, he deemed it of great importance that the railroad should be constructed as nearly as possible on a level. These views, thus early entertained, originated in Stevenson's mind the peculiar character of railroad works as distinguished from other roads, for in railways he early contended that large sums would be wisely expended in perforating barriers of hills with long tunnels, and in raising the lower levels with the excess cut down from the adjacent high ground. In proportion as these views forced themselves upon his mind, and were corroborated by his daily experience, he became more and more convinced of the hopelessness of applying steam locomotion to common roads. For every argument in favour of a level railway was, in his view, an argument against the rough and hilly course of a common road. Although Stevenson's locomotive engines were in daily use for many years on the Killingworth Railway, they excited comparatively little interest. They were no longer experimental, but had become an established tractive power. The experience of years had proved that they worked more steadily, drew heavier loads, and were on the whole considerably more economical than horses. Nevertheless, eight years passed before another locomotive railway was constructed and opened for the purposes of coal or other traffic. Stevenson had no means of bringing his important invention prominently under the notice of the public. He himself knew well its importance, and he already anticipated its eventual general adoption. But being an unlettered man, he could not give utterance to the thoughts which brooded within him on the subject. Killingworth Colliery lay far from London, the centre of scientific life in England. It was visited by no savants or nor literary men who might have succeeded in introducing to notice the wonderful machine of Stevenson. Even the local chroniclers seem to have taken no notice of the Killingworth Railway. There seemed indeed to be so small a prospect of introducing the locomotive into general use, that Stevenson, perhaps feeling the capabilities within him, again recurred to his old idea of emigrating to the United States. Before joining Mr. Burrell as a partner in a small foundry at Fourth Banks, Newcastle, he had thrown out to him the suggestion that it would be a good speculation for them to emigrate to North America and introduce steamboats upon the great inland lakes there. The first steamers were then plying upon the Tyne before his eyes, and he saw in them the germ of a great revolution in navigation. It occurred to him that North America presented the finest field for trying their wonderful powers. He was an engineer, his partner was an iron founder, and between them he thought they might strike out a path to fortune in the mighty West. Fortunately, this idea remained a mere speculation so far as Stevenson was concerned, and it was left to others to do what he had dreamt of achieving. After all his patient waiting, his skill, industry, and perseverance were at length about to bear fruit. In 1819, the owners of the Hetton Colliery in the county of Durham determined to have their wagonway altered to a locomotive railroad. 
The results of the working of the Killingworth Railway had been so satisfactory that they resolved to adopt the same system. One reason why an experiment so long continued and so successful as that at Killingworth should have been so slow in producing results, perhaps was, that to lay down a railway and furnish it with locomotives or fixed engines where necessary required a very large capital, beyond the means of ordinary coal owners, whilst the small amount of interest felt in railways by the general public, and the supposed impracticability of working them to a profit, as yet prevented ordinary capitalists from venturing their money in the promotion of such undertakings. The Hetton Coal Company were, however, possessed of adequate means, and the local reputation of the Killingworth engine right pointed him out as the man best calculated to lay out their line and superintend their works. They accordingly invited him to act as the engineer of the proposed railway, which was to be the longest locomotive line that had, up to that time, been constructed. It extended from the Hetton Colliery, situated about two miles south of Houghton-le-Spring, in the county of Durham, to the shipping places on the banks of the Weir, near Sunderland. Its length was about eight miles, and in its course it crossed Warden Law, one of the highest hills in the district. The character of the country forbade the construction of a flat line, or one of comparatively easy gradients, except by the expenditure of a much larger capital than was placed at the engineer's disposal. Heavy works could not be executed. It was, therefore, necessary to form the line with but little deviation from the natural conformation of the district which it traversed, and also to adapt the mechanical methods employed for its working to the character of the gradients, which in some places were necessarily heavy. Although Stevenson had, with every step made towards its increased utility, become more and more identified with the success of the locomotive engine, he did not allow his enthusiasm to carry him away into costly mistakes. He carefully drew the line between the cases in which the locomotive could be usefully employed, and those in which stationary engines were calculated to be more economical. This led him, as in the instance of the Hetton Railway, to execute lines through and over rough countries where gradients within the powers of the locomotive engine of that day could not be secured, employing in their stead stationary engines where locomotives were not practicable. In the present case, this course was adopted by him most successfully. On the original Hetton line there were five self-acting inclines, the full wagons drawing the empty ones up, and two inclines worked by fixed reciprocating engines of 60 horsepower each. The locomotive travelling engine, or the iron horse, as the people of the neighbourhood then styled it, did the rest. On the day of the opening of the Hetton Railway, the 18th of November, 1822, crowds of spectators assembled from all parts to witness the first operations of this ingenious and powerful machinery, which was entirely successful. On that day, five of Stevenson's locomotives were at work upon the railway, under the direction of his brother Robert, and the first shipment of coal was then made by the Hetton Company at their new stithes on the weir. The speed at which the locomotives travelled was about four miles an hour, and each engine dragged after it a train of seventeen wagons, weighing about sixty-four tons. While thus advancing step by step, Attending to the business of the Killingworth Colliery and laying out railways in the neighbourhood, he was carefully watching over the education of his son. We have already seen that Robert was sent to Bruce's school at Newcastle, where he remained about four years. He left it in the summer of 1819, 
and was then put apprentice to Mr. Nicholas Wood, the head viewer at Killingworth, to learn the business of the colliery. He served in that capacity for about three years, during which time he became familiar with most departments of underground work. The occupation was not unattended with peril, as the following incident will show. Though the use of the Geordie lamp had become general in the Killingworth pits, and the workmen were bound, under penalty of half a crown, not to use a naked candle, it was difficult to enforce the rule, and even the masters themselves occasionally broke it. One day, Nicholas Wood, the head viewer, Moody, the underviewer, and Robert Stevenson were proceeding along one of the galleries. Wood, with a naked candle in his hand, and Robert following him with a lamp. They came to a place where a fall of stones from the roof had taken place, on which Wood, who was first, proceeded to clamber over the stones, holding high the naked candle. He had nearly reached the summit of the heap, when the fire-damp, which had accumulated in the hollow of the roof, exploded, and instantly the whole party were blown down and the lights extinguished. They were a mile from the shaft, and quite in the dark. There was a rush of the workpeople from all quarters towards the shaft, for it was feared that the fire must extend to more dangerous parts of the pit, where, if the gas had exploded, every soul in the mine must inevitably have perished. Robert Stevenson and Moody, on the first impulse, ran back at full speed along the dark gallery leading to the shaft, coming into collision on their way with the hindquarters of a horse stunned by the explosion. When they had gone half-way, Moody halted, and bethought him of Nicholas Wood. "'Stop, laddie,' said he to Robert. "'Stop! We mun gang back and see the master.' So they retraced their steps. Happily no further explosion had taken place. They found the master lying on the heap of stones, stunned and bruised, with his hands severely burnt. They led him to the bottom of the shaft, and he took care afterwards not to venture into the dangerous parts of the mine without the protection of a Geordie lamp. The time that Robert spent at Killingworth as a viewer's apprentice was of advantage both to his father and himself. The evenings were generally devoted to reading and study, the two from this time working together as friends and co-labourers. One who used to drop in at the cottage of an evening well remembers the animated and eager discussions which on some occasions took place, more especially with reference to the growing powers of the locomotive engine. The son was even more enthusiastic than the father on this subject. Robert would suggest numerous alterations and improvements in details. His father, on the contrary, would offer every possible objection, defending the existing arrangements, proud, nevertheless, of his son's suggestions, and often warmed and excited by his brilliant anticipations of the ultimate triumph of the locomotive. These discussions probably had considerable influence in inducing Stevenson to take the next important step in the education of his son. Although Robert, who was only nineteen years of age, was doing well, and was certain at the expiration of his apprenticeship to rise to a higher position, his father was not satisfied with the amount of instruction which he had as yet given him. Remembering the disadvantages under which he had himself laboured through his ignorance of practical chemistry, during his investigations connected with the safety lamp, more especially with reference to the properties of gas, as well as in the course of his experiments with the object of improving the locomotive engine, he determined to furnish his son with as complete a scientific culture as his means would afford. 
He also believed that a proper training in technical science was indispensable to success in the higher walks of the engineer's profession, and he determined to give to his son that kind and degree of education which he so much desired for himself. He would thus, he knew, secure a hearty and generous co-worker in the elaboration of the great ideas now looming before him, and with their united practical and scientific knowledge he probably felt that they would be equal to any enterprise. He accordingly took Robert from his labours as underviewer in the Westmoor pit, and in October 1822 sent him to Edinburgh University, there being then no college in England accessible to persons of moderate means for the purpose of scientific culture. Robert was furnished with letters of introduction to several men of literary eminence in Edinburgh, his father's reputation in connection with the safety lamp being of service to him in this respect. He lodged in Drummond Street, in the immediate vicinity of the college, and attended the chemical lectures of Dr. Hope, the natural philosophy lectures of Sir John Leslie, and the natural history class of Professor Jameson. He also devoted several evenings in each week to the study of practical chemistry under Dr. John Murray, himself one of the numerous designers of a safety lamp. He took careful notes of all the lectures, which he copied out at night before he went to bed, so that when he returned to Killingworth, he might read them over to his father. He afterwards had the notes bound up and placed in his library. Long years after, when conversing with Thomas Harrison, C.E., at his house in Gloucester Square, he rose from his seat and took down a volume from the shelves. Mr. Harrison observed that the book was in manuscript, neatly written out. "'What have we here?' he asked. The answer was, when I went to college, I knew the difficulty my father had in collecting the funds to send me there. Before going, I studied shorthand. While at Edinburgh, I took down verbatim every lecture, and in the evenings before I went to bed, I transcribed those lectures word for word. You see the result in that range of books. One of the practical sciences in the study of which Robert Stevenson took special interest while at Edinburgh was that of geology. The situation of the city in the midst of a district of highly interesting geological formation, easily accessible to pedestrians, is indeed most favourable to the pursuit of such a study, and it was the practice of Professor Jameson frequently to head a band of his pupils, armed with hammers, chisels, and clinometers, and take them with him on a long ramble into the country, for the purpose of teaching them habits of observation, and reading to them from the open book of nature itself. At the close of this session, the professor took with him a select body of his pupils on an excursion along the great glen of the Highlands, in the line of the Caledonian Canal, and Robert formed one of the party. They passed under the shadow of Ben Nevis, examined the famous old sea margins known as the Parallel Roads of Glenroy, and extended their journey as far as Inverness, the professor teaching the young men as they travelled how to observe in a mountain country. Not long before his death, Robert Stevenson spoke in glowing terms of the great pleasure and benefit which he had derived from that interesting excursion. "'I have travelled far and enjoyed much,' he said, "'but that delightful botanical and geological journey I shall never forget, and I am just about to start in the Titania for a trip round the east coast of Scotland, returning south through the Caledonian Canal to refresh myself with the recollection of that first and brightest tour of my life.' Towards the summer of 1822, 
the young student returned to Killingworth to re-enter upon the active business of life. The six-month study had cost his father eighty pounds, but he was amply repaid by the better scientific culture which his son had acquired, and the evidence of ability and industry which he was enabled to exhibit in a prize for mathematics which he had won at the university. End of chapter 7